0: Greetings, I'm Tricia Kaffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture with a special mini-series in Landscape Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me the email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And I have a very special guest here for you today. His book is Planting Design, Connecting People and Place by Patrick, um, did I say right, Moni? Moni. Mooney, published by Routledge in 2020. Hi, Patrick. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Tricia. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, Let's start with, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your educational background?
1: Uh, My first degree was in music, uh, and I actually was a professional musician and music teacher till about my mid-20s when I uh, made the pivot into uh, landscape architecture did a master's at Guelph, uh, eventually wound up uh, teaching uh, at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, and uh, while I was teaching full-time, I completed a PhD in landscape architecture at University of Michigan. Um, I, the big thread in the landscape architecture uh, degree is that I discovered environmental psychology and its application to, to landscape design, Uh, In my first, uh, my master's of landscape architecture degree and carried that interest right through till today. Uh, One of the reasons I did my PhD at Michigan is because Stephen and Rachel Kaplan, very eminent environmental psychologists, uh, taught there in in the School of Natural Resources and Environment, which includes includes landscape architecture. So I was able to do a PhD in landscape architecture there um, and study with both Stephen and Rachel Kaplan. Uh, which uh, for for me, uh, of course, really uh, gave me an exponential gain in both interest and knowledge in this particular area. And I've, um, when I, uh, there's no place in the landscape architecture curriculum for this kind of thing. So I, I say that I grafted it onto planting design and I've taught it. Uh, within my planting design for course for 35 years now. Um, so ultimately, the book is the result of uh, the interest in environmental psychology, studying with the Kaplan's, of course, long-term interest in planting design, uh, and, uh, and teaching that course with uh, the foundational theory being environmental psychology.
0: Oh wow, well let's start with well, I think we covered my next question, which is usually what is your motivation for writing this book? Um let's go what is what's a little bit of history of, of landscape design? Because I, I always like to start there. Where did where did landscape design start?
1: Mm. In in the first chapter of the book, I'm writing about landscape preference. And I the oldest recorded examples of landscape design are uh, wall murals in Egyptian tombs, that date from about 3000 BC. Now, I actually suspect that landscape design, uh, if you define design as changing the landscape to suit people's needs, uh, it's probably as old as uh, homo sapiens. But the oldest recorded um, garden designs date from 3000 BC, and I do a a brief selective survey um, that talks about the Sumerian gardens, the Egyptian gardens, uh, ancient Rome and Greece, um, medieval cloister gardens, the romantic um, estates in, in Britain. Uh, up to the development of city parks and Frederick Law Olmsted, the designer of Central Park, uh, national parks. So the summary of that is that um, the ancients, if you like them, I like to call them that, uh, understood what we've now proven um, through research. They understood from experience and intuition, and that um, in many, many cultures, over all of recorded history, the ideal environment that people can imagine is paradise as a garden and so a lot of our gardens uh, this is true would be true of Chinese gardens, for instance, uh, Islamic gardens uh, a lot of our gardens are human recreations and I mean that recreations of our imaginings of what paradise is like. Our our word um, paradise comes from the Sumerian word paradesa, which means uh, walled around.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't know that. I I just, I was uh, doing a little art history reading recently and we're talking about uh, all the different cultures. So just to be walled in.
1: Well, the early gardens, of course, they were all in arid landscapes, but you also had animal um, marauders and human marauders. So the, uh, the Egyptian garden, uh, by walling it in, you make it safe, but you also make it a microclimate. Uh, the Sumerian gardens were hunting parks, so they needed to be walled basically to keep in the, the uh, game animals. And so, yes, most of the uh, early gardens, uh, really right up until the Middle Ages, uh, I think the Egyptian uh, or the uh, English cloister garden, they were all walled, uh, set off from the outside world, uh, which is an interesting idea that we see particularly in the Japanese garden. The garden is a microcosm, a world of its own, a place of being away from the rest of the world. Oftentimes envisioned as a sacred place.
0: Well, that kind of goes to our next question I've got for you. Is uh, you're talking about curiosity models and uh, your next chapter, seeking knowledge and pleasure? Uh, how does the field of psychology play into uh, landscape design?
1: Uh, okay. That's a really interesting uh, question. It's basically a fundamental question. So really the premise for writing the book is if we don't understand what people want, what makes them feel secure, what gives them pleasure, then how can we possibly design for them? Um, Many people do this intuitively. Uh, Basically what they're saying is, If I like it, if I enjoy it, then everybody will, won't they? And a a lot of designers, I think, still work like that, and some of them are very, very good. But we can be much, much deeper than that. So, for instance, the Kaplan's have said that people have two fundamental needs, the need to understand and to explore, to make sense of. And uh, there's a lot in the book about... What will cause us to explore or not explore? Um, And of course, if we don't explore, um, we can't be engaged. We're not spending time. So we're we're neither getting enjoyment or the benefits that come from contact with landscape. So, um, well, for example, The Kaplans have defined uh, four characteristics of preferred landscapes, and one of them is a quality they call mystery. And they define it this way. Mystery is the quality that tells us if we move further into the landscape, more information will be revealed. So the classic example of mystery is just a path that curves away out of view. And um, humans, instead of being called Homo sapiens, man who knows, should have been called homo curiansis, man who seeks to know, uh, because we are the most curious creatures, right? And we've got to know what's around that corner. Um, so we go deeper, deeper into the landscape. Uh, we see more, we experience more. And here's the key thing. Maybe we get a little surprise, but it has to be. So we won't explore if we don't feel safe. And then when we explore... If we always get our expectations met, then we quickly become bored and we either turn off or leave. So what we need is what I call the delightful surprise. Um, And it's something like this. We would be shocked if we turned the corner in a woodland and found a Ferris wheel. So it's a surprise, but it's an incongruous surprise. It's not what we want in that setting. But if we turn the corner and we're in, a, let's imagine, a fairly close forest with small clearings. And suddenly we turn the corner and we're able to extend a view for miles, and there in the distance is the ocean. That's a delightful surprise. Well, well I wasn't expecting that, but it's not incongruous with what I am. And, gee, that's really great. I, I want to continue. I want to explore more. So one of the – and I, I – I illustrate this actually by um, discussing music and some uh, music theory that the 21st century composer Igor Stravinsky uh, wrote. Um, Because music like landscape is temporal. Basic premise of the book, and most landscape designers understand landscape as a series of connected spaces. So I can look at a picture and it's true, the longer I look at it, I'll experience more details. But with a landscape, the only way I can experience is to move through it over time, just as a piece of music moves past us over time. So landscape and music, I say in the book, are temporal arts. And landscape design is understood of, as the creation of a series of connected spaces that the person moves through and it's the difference between those spaces, their spatial scale, their materials, the quality of light, sound, scent, um, the transitions between them that create the experience.
0: Oh, well, I knew I was going to love this interview because I, I saw that and, um, I play flute Ah. and, uh, well, I didn't major in it. I, uh, I stayed with it and I still do. And, um, Yes, I'm very familiar with Stravinsky's Firebird.
1: Right. Well, I, I talked just I, – incidentally, I played f- flute too. It was my second instrument.
0: Oh, um, okay. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, Stravinsky gave a series of lectures at Yale, and they're published in a little book called The Poetics, um, The Poetics of Music. And I just quote one little quote from him there. But basically, he understands the listener as a co-composer. The music sets up expectations. The person engages with those expectations. And here's what Stravinsky says that that is absolutely common with landscape. If expect- expectations are always met, the listener will cease to co-compose. They'll leave. If expectations are never met, then they're confused and they'll also leave. And this, I maintain, first of all, that the the similarity here is instead of moving through spaces in music you're moving through blocks of sound sequences of sonic composition and um and in both you need this balance between meeting expectations and exceeding expectations
0: oh i love that so Let's go to the next one. How do we uh, how do we do all this? How do we put so, how do we, What are your principles? How do we start putting some of this into practice?
1: Mm. Um, what I've done uh, in the book is at the at the end of every chapter, I have um, listed a series of principles, um, and they're point form. And they they tie back to um, the research or the case studies that are presented in the in the book. So, first of all, I, I want to we're being very theoretical here. Normally, this is the stuff I I skip over. Um, the first two chapters of the book contain pretty much most of the theoretical basis for the book. So, the first chapter is called. Uh, landscape preference, and the second chapter is called The Restorative Landscape. And having sort of laid out all that theory and cited it extensively, um, the rest of the book is about what you'd expect a book on planting design to be about. Uh, shaping space with plants, um, the use of color, form, line, color, texture, balance. Um, and uh, at uh, illustrated with case studies from these really great landscape designers and landscape architects. And then at the end of every chapter, it's summed up as a bullet point. So uh, I'll give you one very simple example. The Kaplan say that for a landscape to be restorative, and by that I mean, relieve stress restores cognitive functioning. Um, it must have a quality they call fascination. Uh, Fascination is what causes us to effortlessly engage in the landscape and it's triggered by natural content. Uh, And by that we mean mostly vegetation, but things like landform, rocks, water is a huge attractor to people. So um, a bullet point at the end of, of that chapter uh, would be something like if you want people to be engaged in your landscapes, if you want a high level of fascination, then the landscape could be should be lush. One way to do that is to plant in layers.
0: Yes, and uh, we talked a little bit earlier right beforehand that uh, you have uh, pulled from a lot of different landscape designers. How does your book differ from, say, uh, Pete Oroff, that's his Pete, name? Pete Udoff. Udoff, i uh, oh, sorry, Udoff.
1: Yeah. <laughs> how
0: does your book differ from somebody like him?
1: Okay, so let's first of all talk about Pete. Um, there's a, a movement in planting design uh, which has been given various names, but it's generally called the New Wave Perennial Movement now. And probably any of our listeners will be aware how much more we're doing uh, ornamental grasses and perennial plantings uh, than we were 10, 20 years ago. Now, this is a movement that came out of the Netherlands uh, really starting in the 60s. But Pete Odoff um, is, is the world leader. Um, most of us will know his work probably, again, many of our listeners have a mental image of the High Line in New York, which, I, which is one of the case studies in the book. So uh, the landscape architect on that was James Corner of uh, Field Operations is his firm, but he hired Pete to do the planting design. So Pete has two basic criteria for his work. First of all, and I love this, he says, I always start with the feeling I want to have. And then secondly, his work is a reaction to the traditional European flower garden. He wanted to create landscapes that gave the same emotional response, the same effective response as being in a in a in what he calls a wild landscape. Now, the European wild landscape is not equivalent to that in North America. So when they say wild landscape, they don't mean the Rocky Mountains and Grizzly Bears. They mean <laughs> the rudderal landscapes, the abandoned corner of the estate, the roadside edges, those kinds of landscapes. So those are the two things that Pete's trying to do. Uh, He does it extremely well, and uh, he's done some really significant work. I I say in the book that he's largely responsible for convincing the world that these kinds of grassy perennial landscapes uh, can be major public landscapes. Uh, My book uses his work, um, and I have one section, just the principles of Pete's work, and then the principles for that chapter, Um, but it also uses the work of people like Andrea Cochran. She's an award-winning landscape architect with offices in San Francisco, and her work is the extreme minimalist modernism. Uh, It's not wild at all. It has an extreme quality of calmness and stillness to it. And it's uh, although it looks sparse, it's incredibly carefully considered. Uh, So I think the biggest, in answer to your question, the short answer now, is the difference between my book and almost any other book on planting design that you can buy is other books are trying to convince you to copy a particular style. Do this and it will be low maintenance. Do this and it will be um, postmodern. Do this and your work will look like Pete Ordo. Um My book is lays out all these principles. You're free to choose those that resonate with you. Um, and it, uh, It's about hoping to help you find your particular style or styles um, and I know from the experience that, just speaking for myself, in design, I have my proclivities, but um, at over 70 years of age, I'm still uh, apprenticing. I'm still developing as a designer. And the, the intent of the book is to help you find your way.
0: Oh, I love that. Principles over... Uh, materiality?
1: Uh, the, yes, absolutely. Um, the, it's very common to um, see something you like, um, do a quick aesthetic analysis, and say, gee, I really like terracotta yarrow with salvia nemorosa may not, Um, and that's a purple-orange color contrast, which is complementary and intense, Um, Mm -hmm. but that's pretty superficial, right? Um, That should be part of a deeper analysis that says, uh, I want a prolonged season of bloom, partly for visual interest, but partly to provide uh, habitat for pollinators. Um, and so this particular combination can be one part of that. Or to say, now, this is a key idea. Uh, landscape architects use the word program to describe the goals, the vision, and the, the physical elements uh, that are put into any site. Um, key thing to understand is planting design is not a cosmetic lipstick that goes on at the end of a design its role is to support the entire program
0: Mm. and that kind of goes to um maybe a little bit uh your chapter five you have a quote it's uh and laurie olin you were talking about him too landscape architecture is not about bushes and trees but shaping of space how do you teach shaping of space in this book
1: right um yeah, so that's, uh, isn't that a heretical statement to put in a book on planting designs?
0: <laughs> I don't think so. I think it's a perfect chapter.
1: <laughs> well, so I think probably the biggest difference between, well, okay, let's, let's just back up. Let's talk about space. Um, there are various... Mm, methods of actually attempting to measure the beauty or the preference that a landscape has. One of these, for instance, is the scenic beauty estimation method that was developed by landscape architects at the U.S. Bureau of Land Management. But Stephen Kaplan says, and other people too, um, uh, that the fundamental experience of landscape is the movement through space. And so, I I agree with that, and I think the biggest difference between landscape architects and uh, landscape designers, particularly self-taught designers, is that landscape architects understand what they do as the shaping of space for human uh, use and experience. So um, that's why, really, once I dispose of the theory and the mechanics of things like soil and fertility, I move right into space. It's the... It's the primary thing. Um, You should understand your designs as a sequence of spaces and you understand how they relate to each other. There's a famous old landscape architect wrote one of the great uh, 21st century texts, John Ormsby Simons. And Simons says the effect of entering a space will be influenced greatly by its relation to the space in front of it. Uh, the, the more different they are from each other, the more dynamic or, or Im- impactful will be the experience of moving from one space to another. Um, and of course, we don't want that all the time, but we probably want it some of the time. There's a wonderful example I give in the book. It's Shugakuan Imperial Villa outside of Kyoto, which was actually designed by the emperor for himself. And uh, the, the key thing here is this Japanese notion of borrowed view, shakai. So borrowed view means not that we can just extend a view from the garden. It means that we cannot see where the garden ends and the context landscape begins. The garden flows seamlessly into the larger landscape. Incidentally, which I discovered in the book, is something that a lot of these very good landscape architects pay a lot of attention to. Anyhow, back to Shigaku Inn. In the whole garden, we're given these confined views. We walk down a path with pine trees on either side, so we really can only see up and down the path. And then finally, he takes us to this high point in the garden. We come through a gate. We turn 90 degrees and we can extend a view for at least 50, maybe 100 miles. It's the greatest um, borrowed view in the canon of Japanese traditional gardens. And he made that effect so impactful by denying us any kind of extended view, by giving us only tight, contained views, until suddenly he blows us away with this (laughs) gigantic extended views out of the garden, into the mountains of Japan. So that's an example of, of how understanding landscape as a sequence of spaces can be used to really create experience.
0: Oh, yeah, and it kind of reminds me, you know, one of my professors one time, Professor Bueno, he told me how artful, uh, you know, Central Park was in New York. Is, is that kind of the same thing, this, his sequence of experiences in that park? I haven't been there, actually.
1: Oh, yeah. Central Central Park is great. Now, if you go back, uh, what it was a design competition. And the uh, city of New York had laid out a number of things. So it had to have a mall. It had to have bridal trail paths. It had to have passage through the park. And it was designed by um, Frederick Law Olmsted, who almost well, he wasn't quite, but the first landscape architect in North America, uh, it was during his era that the term started being used and his partner, Calvert Boe, uh, was an architect. Um, but they absolutely understood, uh, what I'm talking about. The landscape as a sequence of alternating spaces and it's the variation of these spaces that creates the, um, the experience. So, um, Any way you move through Central Park, you experience to a lesser extent the same thing I've just been describing. Moving from uh, tighter human scale spaces to larger superhuman scales in a a measured, controlled sequence.
0: And, okay, so how do we kind of start achieving this type of planning design it sounds like you'd be able to from this book students can create their own identity with it
1: well i didn't really answer your question about how we design space and i I do lay out a method in the book
0: okay let's go back to that
1: (laughs) it's it's something that that i've um developed over the years and i uh make my students do it uh what i have them do is uh give them a site. I give them a program. They develop the program further. And then before they start picking any plants, they diagram the spaces on the site, the transitions between those spaces. Where do I need a transition? Uh, Transitions should occur where the character of the landscape changes, character or use. Um, And then one of the wonderful things about landscape is we can create and planting design is that we can create walls that are um, completely open or completely closed and everything in between. So um, uh, I define a screen as a barrier that we can't move through or see through, and a scrim as a barrier we can see through but not move through. And so they diagram their spaces, then they diagram their intention for spatial enclosure. And only then do they pick their plants. So uh, what we're doing is we're getting very explicit with ourselves about what the spaces are intended to be, uh, both in terms of how big they are, uh, but more how they're walled and how they flow into each other. And so that's laid out in the book as as a method uh, people can use. Um, And to be fair, It's not easy. It takes uh, a while to get used to doing it. But again, it's, uh, you see what we're doing here. We're satisfying for space and sequence before we consider plants. We don't start with, oh, this is a nice combination. I want to use it.
0: No, actually, you know, I totally get that. Um, I've been taking this painting class and uh, we have to, he, my professor, he's, he's really cool. He's like, do the big shapes, do the big shapes. Don't worry about the details. And, um, I'm kind of the, a little bit more of the beginner in that class. And, uh, now every, even the advanced people are kind of slowing down and we're all doing big shapes first. And then he was going to take away all of our tiny little brushes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like no details, no details yet.
1: <laughs> yes, that's right. And of course, all design is an iterative process you can start um, with one intention and then uh, in the process of designing you discover something and you go back and you modify and change your intentions. Um, a really good example of that, um, I think it happens to all of us when we design with plants, we, we might start off with a, a basic plant palette, or oh, this is what I think I'm going to use. And then as we start to flesh it out, we, we come up with some other combinations that are better, and by the time we're done, the original plants we chose may be absent.
0: Yeah. the yeah, so
1: either, on either our intent or the way we decided to achieve that intent has evolved, which is perfect. That's what should happen.
0: So from there, after we've discovered space and we've displaced, et cetera, what are some elements of design? How do we, what's the next step?
1: Right, so there's a chapter called "Elements of Design," and this is really the big chapter. so the elements of design all we've all really got to work with are form, line, color, texture, mass, visual weight and and balance and so I begin by defining them, um, but then i I talk about how they can be used and let me for example um in Pete Odoff's designs, he uses uh, clumping grasses. Most of our ornamental grasses are clumpy grasses. They don't run. Uh, the, the nice term for them is cespitose grasses. But, uh, and he says in, uh, that spiky perennials, things like um, Verona castrum and uh, Salvia nemorosa, uh, Leatris, um, Sangasorba. Uh, go very, very well with these upright grasses. And uh, why? Because their forms, if they don't match, they talk to each other, they relate. And so that gives a great visual unity of form. So now he can go crazy with things like uh, complexity. Uh, so so that's that's one example. One thing that I'm very, very big on um, is texture. I, I say, uh, so plant texture is the visual impression of roughness that a plant gives. And it's based on the size of the leaves, but also the arrangement in density because it's really caused by the leaf shadows, uh, illustrated in the book. And then, uh, one of the reasons I think, principal reasons why so many designs lack visual unity is because the designers have not um, considered texture and textural unity. So when I'm designing whatever else I'm doing, I I work very hard to get uniform textures, plants that are maybe a ground cover that is so similar to the leaves of the tree under which it's growing that that they blend. And only when I've got an overall textural unity am I free to add those contrasts, standout uh, landmark uh, Plants. So, um, and interestingly enough, if you look at it, um, all the people in the book, all the people in the book do that. Um, now, here's the thing. Some of these great designers like Pete Odoff and Andrew Cochran uh, probably do it intuitively. Uh, I was actually talking to Pete, and I said to him, you know, you you use the texture of the flowers themselves as a unifying element. And he, he said, oh, do I? Which was quite surprising to me because he does it a lot. It's quite obvious to, say, most other designers. So um, those are some examples of really going through form, line, color, and texture Um taking case studies and really pulling them apart and illustrating how the principles I've just enunciated are evident in the work, and then summing it up in principles that people can use. So that chapter, other than color, that's the design meat of the book. So we have space, then we have elements of design, form, form, line, color, texture, mass, balance, directional movement. and then color, as I say in the book, is such a complex subject that it gets its own chapter. And uh, that was really uh, uh, actually a wonderful chapter to write.
0: Okay, well, then you're going to have to tell me about it. Don't, don't, don't keep me in suspense now. What's, what's, what's the deal with color? How do we use it?
1: Well, okay. The, the, we've probably all been asked, what's our favorite color? Now, there's there's research on that, too. Worldwide, the favorite colors are blue and red, (laughs) (laughs) cross-culturally.
0: That's right. (laughs) But
1: um, I maintain that any color by itself is flat. It's boring. Uh, It's only when we put that color with another color that it becomes really interesting, because the colors... Influence each other. Uh, I'll try and explain that. It's a little complex. Um, If I'm looking at a shirt and that shirt is red, it means that that shirt is reflecting light of a certain wavelength um, in the uh, spectrum and it's absorbing all the other light. Now, the light that it's absorbing is called its complement. So the complement of green is red. What that means is that when you put, um, let's say we put red with blue, the red will color that blue greener. It will make that blue a greeny blue or a more greeny blue. But what happens when we put red with green? It, the red makes the green greener, and the complement of green is red. The green makes the red redder. Now, here's an interesting thing. If we reduce the amount of the red and increase the amount of the green, the red gets even more redder. I, I quote, uh, there's a famous uh, Human geographer, a guy named Gordon Cullen, he wrote a wonderful book called Townscape. And in that book, he talks about visual sequencing. Landscape is an experience of spaces and views. But he talks about color. And he says something like this. There was a landscape by Corot. I forget the name. It was a series of somber greens. And there was a small figure in red. It was the reddest thing I ever saw. I illustrate that with uh, a picture of award-winning Chelsea garden where you have these uh, tiny little uh, pops of yellow and gold against a green, green background. And so it's just what I described earlier. You've got this massive amount of green and tiny little pops of color, and those colors are so dominant so what's a lesson here um, you a color does not have to be used in massive amounts to become the dominant visi- visual attractor of the scene so um i go into uh, there's actually a section in the book called a Brief history of color um where we where I lay out uh basically historically, going back to the ancient Greeks, the ancient Greeks said, I don't think color is a real thing. I think it's uh, an object of human perception, um, just like sound is. And uh, right, uh, wonderful, well, Newton Newton split light to reveal that it was made up of um, different wavelengths that were different colors. Um, So he discovered the science. There was a German uh, statesman, composer, writer, um, Wolfgang Goethe. Goethe wrote the Faust legend, the story of the man who sold his soul to the devil, which was later turned into two operas. Goethe studied the emotional impact. He was the first person to say um, warm colors, hot colors, saturated colors are stimulating, and pale, cool colors uh, short wavelength colors are calming and restorative. Uh, so, uh, we pull that apart in the book, and we we give some examples about how to use color. Uh, gradation in the use of color. Uh, gradation is a is a concept that can be applied to color, but also to things like texture and form. Um, so let let's stay with gradated color. So gradation means moving by small incremental, perhaps even um, imperceptible steps. And so I give a, a diagram example in the book of two colors that absolutely don't go together. Uh, I think they're maroon and orange. Um, but I showed that one can move between them in steps and, um, and come up with a gradation of color that causes them to blend. Another interesting idea in the use of color along these lines. Uh, What's called an analogous color scheme is colors that are side by side on the color wheel. So that might be blue, uh, red, blue, purple. Um, The research showed us that analogous color schemes are considered to be the most harmonious color schemes and that cool analogous color schemes are the most preferred by people. So that's an interesting idea, but we can also relate colors to the curiosity models. So there's two curiosity models. One says that people are knowledge seekers. They want to explore. They want to understand where they are. They're frustrated if they can't do that. And the other says, no, People are stimulus seekers. We're easily bored and we'll go out looking for stimulus. So if there's a, there's a wonderful color theory called reversal theory that I discovered in the book, and to me it made a, so much sense. Um, <clears throat> the way they research color most of the time is they put people in a dark room And they put a little square gray cardboard on the table and then they put color chips on top of it and ask them what they like. And uh, well, that doesn't necessarily um, equate to what people actually prefer in the real world. So that research will tell you that yellow is one of the least preferred colors. And yet in Sweden, Uh, Pale yellow is the most preferred colors for buildings. Uh, So this uh, color theory is called reversal theory. The researchers did something very interesting. They asked people their color preferences several times during the day. And what they discovered is that sometimes people like, we call them tints, pastels, pale, cool colors, and other times they like hot, saturated colors, uh, reds and oranges that were very bright. And hence, reversal theory. And their premise is this. People have two preferred states. They're either seeking peace and quiet, respite, or they're seeking stimulus, excitement. And when they're seeking respite or engaged in it, they like cool, pale colors. And when they're seeking stimulus or engaged in stimulus, they like hot, saturated colors. And that these two states, respite or stimulus, are the preferred states and the normal state, which is neither, um, is not preferred. So uh, if, if you believe that research, and, and for me it resonates, Um, The impact of that is there is no one right color scheme and you must recognize that um, people have these two desired states and really the ideal would be give them the ability to find either in your designs at any time. Um, Again, many of our listeners will know Gertrude Jekyll, the famous British plants uh, person and, and landscape designer. Uh, her famous book, Color in Your Garden. I show some examples of of, of her work. Uh, I show her own garden, colored. Um, uh, but she was highly aware of this color theory that I've been talking about, highly aware. And she used it consciously. She described her use of it in her book. And we see, uh, for instance, a typical Gertrude Jekyll herbaceous border. We'll start with... Uh, pale blues or gray blues and then it will move into the complement of that which is pale yellow and then it moves from the yellow in the center it moves into intense reds and yellows saturated colors and then backs out the same way from the saturated reds and oranges into the pale yellows back into the pale blues so it's it's that sequence of uh, calming restorative excited and back out to calming and one experiences it um, regardless of uh which end of the border they begin from. So it's that old adage in landscape architecture that a path must must work in both directions. Um so those are some of the ways in which uh color theory has been applied and uh continues to be applied, and it's it's uh, Actually, the editor said to me when I submitted the book proposal, he said, "Do you think you could write a whole chapter on color?" I said, "Yeah, people have written whole books on color. I think I can manage a chapter." And of course, as I did the book and I delved into it, I, I learned a lot uh, about color, and particularly the historical development of color theory that I hadn't really understood, um, and and uh, nuances of of how we can use color. Uh, to create uh, experience, to create emotional response, but also how we can use it to support intentions like mental restoration.
0: Oh, yeah, that's fascinating. I am familiar with Go's color theory, and now that really makes sense about how to really apply it.
1: Well, yeah, as I say, there's lots of examples in the book, and uh, then so. The way I wrote the book, I, <laughs> when I wrote the proposal, I was very brave. I said, I'm going to get the work of, of all these famous landscape architects and use it to illustrate the theory. Uh, as it turned out, and I say this in the acknowledgements, I was so blessed that people like Pete Odoff and Andrea Cochran and uh, Christy Tanaik and Kong Jin Yu in China, Shuyo Masuno in Japan, uh, shared their work with me. Um they would basically, here's a set of images you can use. Here's a description of the project. And then I would write it up and send it back to them. And we'd go back and forth until they were happy that the text I'd written was a true analysis of what they thought they'd designed. So, um, yeah, that was just uh, the book without the case studies, without being illustrated by the work of people like Pete Odoff um, is flat. It's only when you add the work that as an illustration of what I'm talking about, that it starts to be to make sense and I hope become exciting to read.
0: Well, let me ask you, how, how would an educator use this book? How is it structured?
1: Mm. Okay. So I'm actually just finishing teaching a, a course in planting design. And the book was written. Uh, with the intent that it could be used as a textbook in planting design. So it has seven chapters. Most university semesters are uh, 13 to 16 weeks long. So the idea is that if if you can get your students to read one chapter every two weeks, then they'll finish the book by the end of uh, semester. So what I do in my class is I assign readings from the book every every week but I begin each, our classes are four hours long, I begin with a discussion. I ask the students to read the chapter and come back with questions. And uh, I found the book incredibly helpful because something will come up, let's say, that is confusing and and I'll remember, oh, okay, if we go to that illustration or that case study in chapter five, um, even though they just read chapter one, that will illustrate what we're talking about. And so we have had some very good discussions. Sometimes the discussions go on for more than an hour, and I have to cut them off so we can move on to other things. Um, But the other thing uh, that I'm finding, because the way I teach is the students develop each design gradually over a number of weeks, and I critique it at at all stages. it's been very helpful to me to not just give the critique, but to say that um, here here's the quote or here's the piece of research that supports what I'm telling you. Hmm. Let me back up on that a little bit. Um, when I submitted the uh, book proposal, the editor said, are these just your own ideas? And I said, no, uh, of course not. They're They're based on... 100 years of research, and they said, well, can you cite cite it then, cite it and reference it so we know it's not just your own idea? And so I did. And and, anybody who picks up the book will see that there's a citation or a reference probably in every paragraph. Um, So the key thing that I'd like the listeners to take away is this is not um, my opinion. This is all based on empirical, peer-reviewed research that's been published. And I've selected um, what I consider to be the best research. So, yes, there's some subjective judgment in there for sure. But um, the key, so it goes back to your question of how does an instructor use it. If we're just talking about my opinion versus my student's opinion, then um, they're as valid as I am. But if I, as an instructor, can say, this is not just my opinion, it's backed up by, um, you know, all this different research, um, then hopefully I can convince the student to uh, move off doing intuitive, intuitive design and mesh that with uh, facts-based design.
0: Oh, that's perfect. And uh, Patrick, on that note it's been a pleasure to have you here today for this conversation. And, uh, I know we've taken up a lot of your time. Could you tell the audience, what are you working on now?
1: Hmm. I've actually got an, an interesting research project just starting up the, um, the, uh, in the book I write about, uh, there's one chapter on what I call functional landscapes and the, uh, Part of that is rain gardens. So rain gardens are uh, basins that collect stormwater and infiltrate it back into the groundwater. So in the process, they clean it and and they're planted. So up until this point in time, rain gardens have been treated uh, as green infrastructure to do stormwater management. And they're mostly planted with uh, juncus, uh, carrick species juncus uh, effusus, commonly used. So they they're, they tend not to be terribly visually interesting. And <clears throat> there's a group at uh, University of Sheffield who have been experimenting with, let's say, flowering perennials that can be used in, um, in rain gardens. Uh, I also have a section in the book, the, the chapter on sort of functional landscape where There's a very good section, I think, on how to create habitat for pollinators. So what we're doing in this research, I've got a co-researcher from the industry, is we're building rain gardens that are also intended to be pollinator habitat. And and then we're going to uh, do a public survey to see uh, which designs the public like best. So um, the... We couldn't even get the plants we wanted to use. We've ordered the seed from Germany and the seed is growing in the greenhouse right now. Um, Later on this summer, we'll build uh, 10 different rain gardens at a a research field and then we'll monitor them for plant growth, uh, maintenance costs, installation costs, pollinator use and public preference. So um, in a sense, it's part and parcel of of an extension of one small part of the book, but, um, I'm, I'm actually quite excited about, uh, making rain gardens that are more attractive and perform more services.
0: Oh, that sounds great. Well, you'll have to send me that book when it's ready.
1: Well, that, that particular, um, I think the result of that will be a couple of research papers, but yeah, I'll send you some images once we get it going.
0: That sounds excellent. Well, um, Patrick, thank you so much for being here today. And I want to tell the audience this fabulous book. It says they can't see it. It's beautifully done. Um, And research is just impeccable, um, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, I I do have some credentials in that. I I have a a research background. This was very well done. I just want to let the audience know that. And um, the book is Planting Design, Connecting People and Place by Patrick Mooney, published by Routledge in 2020. And again, I'm Tricia Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture with a special mini-series in Landscape Architecture, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Thank you for being here today.